The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get over to our guest for this half hour, Belita Ong, chairman or chair of Dalton Investments, to talk about the latest on the markets. And Belita, I actually want to start with the Tankan survey for the third quarter that we've just had out of Japan. That uh, large manufacturing index coming in at eight, the survey was for 10. We've got a very weak yen, of course. Why is this not benefiting uh, Chinese exporters and manufacturers? Um, first, thanks for having me back, Paul. Um, the Tenken survey is reflecting the weakness that uh, Prime Minister Kishida said he would address. And it is the reason that um, Kuroda, who is the BOJ uh, governor, and uh, the finance minister are working together to try and stimulate the Japanese economy. So I think that it's not, uh, I know the estimates were off, but it's not surprising that the Japanese economy is still weak, given what's happened um, with, uh, you know, with the whole uh, world uh, economy. Yeah, there was one segment of that index that did outperform, and that was the uh, the large non-manufacturing index, a read of 14 there, the survey was for 13. Uh, why, why the bright spot? So that's interesting. Uh, to us, we um, don't try and predict macro trends and not even specifically sector trends. What we try and do is look at one company at a time. And when we look at individual companies, we actually see bright spots because when you look at uh, Japanese projection for the next year's earnings, you typically see very conservative estimates of revenues from abroad. So for instance, in Toyota's case, uh, the last projection they had of uh, dollar sales were at 114 dollar yen and, and as we know dollar yen is more like 145 right now so um, we believe there is upside for a number of Japanese companies uh, based on uh, their future sales if they have significant sales uh, that are denominated in dollars so you know the way I look at it the Tenkin survey is a survey and uh, it may not be accurate it may be that uh, the future will turn out to be better than the survey suggests yeah, when do you imagine that those numbers might start to turn around, that the survey might start to uh, to catch up with uh, some of what you see is going on in Japan? We're hopeful that uh, next uh, year, perhaps by the spring or so, we'll start to see some stronger numbers. Um, the uh, Kishida-san won uh, a significant majority through the last uh, round of uh, elections and has a clear path to be able to implement his policies for three years. And he went to Guildhall uh, and then to the New York Stock Exchange and essentially said to the world uh, of uh, investors, I am going to stimulate the Japanese economy. Um, hold me accountable. We're going to change. You know, the one thing that we all know about the Japanese economy, which has been problematic, which is labor uh, practices, this life, lifetime employment um, that they've had. 
And he specifically said that we're moving to a merit-based employment system and we'll encourage more women into the workforce. So, you know, these are things that I think we should try and take him at his word because he he can actually do something about it. Um, And Japan tends to be a society that listens to people in charge. And so we're hopeful that uh, something material will come out of uh, his his uh, efforts. Yeah, reform in Japan, of course, notoriously difficult to achieve, and and uh, also inflation traditionally been notoriously low. There's signs that's starting to turn around now, but no sign of a change in policy from the Bank of Japan. Do you imagine that that's going to re- remain the same until the end of Governor Kuroda's term? Yes, I do. Um, the way Kuroda-san puts it is that the inflation they're seeing in Japan is entirely due to the weak yen. In other words, it's imported inflation. And the domestic economy is still weak. So what would be the point of tightening when it's not the domestic demand that's the problem? And that makes sense. But on top of which, in Japan, you have um, uh, Kishida-san essentially working his hardest to reopen nuclear power plants, which... You know, it's a significant step for um, Japan in terms of being able to contain inflation because they do import energy. Um, so I think that they are taking the right moves to try and uh, resolve this um, um, or head off any sort of uh, widespread inflation problems. The one thing I would look at is if the labor market starts tightening up more and you start seeing wage inflation, I think that the BOJ mm-hmm. itself would actually take notice of that. Belita, China, of course, closed this week for the Golden Week holiday, but uh, I understand you've shifted your weighting towards China. You were already underweight. Uh, what's making you more concerned? So the um, uh, Party Congress is always a uh, very big propaganda event, uh, and uh, it is the uh, period during which the government positions are reshuffled and Um, there is a recounting of the success of the um, party and the progress of the country. So we expect to see changes in policies only, you know, several months after all that settled out. But the issue is that in China, you have these significant headwinds that are facing it that haven't gone gone away just because you have a optimistic sounding uh, party congress uh, statement that, that will be published. And specifically, there are issues with the real estate market, which is a very big part of the economy. The issues with demography because uh, China is aging uh, very quickly. There are increasing geopolitical tensions. Um, and then the trade wars or the trade rifts between the East and the West are growing. And none of that's good for China, which has benefited maybe more than anybody else from these uh, last few decades of globalization. So, you know, the, the reality is that the problems China faces are real and they're not going away and they have to be dealt with. Yeah, you did mention the upcoming party congress, and uh, once Xi Jinping is confirmed for that third term, I mean, there is an anticipation that there's going to be some sort of policy change. I'm just wondering what you're expecting in terms of stimulus and in terms of policy to to get China out of this rut. The one thing China needs to do to get out of this rut is to uh, remove the zero COVID policy. And that will not happen until after this party congress. So there is hope. I've I've read a number of um, uh, sources that believe that um, uh, the zero COVID policy will be removed come uh, spring next year, and that perhaps by the end of this year, they will do a widespread launch of the mRNA vaccine in China. So hopefully we can follow that timeline and things will improve uh, sometime early next year.
With that in mind, I mean, can you view this as a buying opportunity? There's some some quality names there that are pretty beaten up at the moment. There really are. I, I agree with that. Uh, the issue we have with China is to do with the philosophy of how we invest. We invest based on looking for good companies that are uh, strong balance sheet, good cash flows, run by entrepreneurs who whose interests are aligned with shareholders like us. And in China, unfortunately, the trend is much more towards state-owned enterprises, not towards private sector entrepreneurs, which makes it hard for us to find management that we can trust will work in the best interests of minority shareholders like us. So that's a problem for us. And then secondly, the um, you know the uh, rules change on a dime in China. So for instance, if you were in the uh, invested in the um, private education sector overnight, your business just you know dropped like a, like a stone. And so it's very hard for us to operate in, in an environment like that. Yeah, it's a challenging investing environment uh, generally at the moment. I'm just wondering with the strong dollar, uh, do you have a more outsized than usual cash allocation so you can be nimble? And you're looking at havens at all. I mean, gold's cheap quite no, quite cheap right now. So we want to invest in companies that we believe will be uh, around for 20, 30 years, that we see a clear path uh, or at least a, a very um, likely path to compound value over time. And Gold is not something we can make a bet on um, with those types of uh, considerations. But what we are seeing is very cheap companies uh, that have that path forward in Japan. And, um, you know, while Japan is uh, slow right now, we finally have the reopening of the economy on October 11th to both foreign tourists and domestic tourists. So no more uh, visas for 70 countries, I believe, and um, uh, in the, uh, which is, was a big deal. And, um, you know, no more quarantines after you get into the country. And with domestic tourists who make up Mm -hmm. a big part of the economy, um, they start getting discounts. Yep. Very much a relief in Japan that those restrictions are finally starting to ease. Belita Ong, chair of Dalton Investments, thanks so much for joining us today on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.